Hello, can you hear me? Hi. I can. Oh, cute cat. <laughs> I forgot to change my picture. How are you doing? You're cute? Cool. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> Say hi to Brazil. Is that the first time <laughs> you're interviewed by Brazil? Um, maybe. I mean, I've had some people contact me maybe for fan scenes or something before. But um, yeah. Cool. Do you know any, any Brazilian word? I know, um, <laughs> obrigada, and I know, como vai, ah, tudo bem, <laughs> <laughs> and okay. that's about it, but I have been to, I've been there, I've been to Rio, I went to Rio once, um, I think it was like 2005 or so, and uh, my stepsister lived there um, with my stepbrother-in-law, and he's a professor of South American history and at Georgetown University. Uh, Brian McCann is his name. And he, um, so he sometimes would live in Rio to do, um, like to write books and things like that. And, um, and he speaks fluent Portuguese and stuff like that. And she, my stepsister also learned, I thought she sounded pretty good, like to mm. me. <laughs> um, so I, and I had a boyfriend in Uruguay at the time um, who I was visiting in Montevideo. And so we flew up from there to go visit my stepsister and stepbrother-in-law um, and their kid um, in Rio for a week. And oh man, yeah, I loved it. It was so awesome and beautiful and amazing food and we went to Biggie B's and got juices like three times a day. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. And we just had the awesomest time. And it was great because to have people there who really live there and to be able to stay with them. And every night, um, my stepbrother-in-law would open the newspaper and just say like, okay, here's some cool events going on tonight. You should go to this. You should go to that. He couldn't always take us because they were busy sometimes, but he was would tell us where to go and what to do. And it was just awesome to have that kind of tour guidance. But also my uh, boyfriend, he knew, he said he knew some Portuguese from um, telenovelas that, you know, you could tune in across the border in, in Uruguay. And so he actually did pretty well too, kind of getting us around, um, and meanwhile, it was right before the Rolling Stones played on Copacabana Beach. Oh, that's 2006, <laughs> I guess. Six. Okay, yeah. So it was that time then, that year. And I know that all of a sudden, the city was kind of flooded with Portenos who were like coming up for the concert in advance. And um, I remember my boyfriend was really annoyed at all the... Um, Argentinians <laughs> who were not, um, who weren't even trying to speak Portuguese. <laughs> and he's like, I try. Um, so that was cool. It was really fun. And we were staying in Copacabana. So it was perfect. Really. Did you go to the concert? No, we weren't there yet. You know, we weren't still there. Like, I think we had to leave not long before, but, um, but people were already coming into town, but no, I wasn't able to go. So. Okay, cool. All right, and how's the COVID situation in the United States? Oh, well, you know, it's never been good, especially given like all of our Trump years. But, um, well, yeah, it's, you know, just by listening to the news, it's spreading a lot. And then I, of course, now am hearing of a lot of people who have been getting it. Um, luckily, if they get it, if they were boosted and they got it, they're okay. Like most people I know have been just having a cold, but for people who aren't boosted or who have, you know, um, other immunocompromised situations, it hasn't been the same story. Um, uh, my sister has a friend who wasn't boosted and she was really sick. Like, I mean, not hospital sick, but you know, pretty bad flu. So yeah, I don't know. It's not good. It, it bums me out that it's, you know, gotten so bad again i just two years in almost i'm just sick of it you know it was super <laughs> exciting that it was gonna come to an end mm. and then it starts all over again right how about in brazil i mean i know that you guys had bolsonaro and <laughs> all bolsonaro. sorts of bad things you know about that already <laughs> yeah know? we elected it 
guy that's just mentally disabled. Uh, yeah, well, same, same here. So it's it <laughs> seems to be spreading around the world. I mean, not just COVID, but like right wing um, hyper capitalist leaders and fascism. Yeah, yeah, um, we have yeah, like and fascists. We have like the the New Year's Eve and people just didn't give a fuck. There were huge crowds of people without masks. So now we're having like wow. a new wave of COVID and people are getting sick again. So wow. yeah, I think they had too much. They were too excited to do something. And then when they did it, they did it the wrong way. And then we have COVID again. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I know it's kind of, it's scary in a way. And it's like, well, it was also really hard to get the, um, antigen tests you know the kind of take-home kits that you can just instantly find out at least sort of if you have it um it's really hard to get them here they're all sold out everywhere um but my uh i was in tennessee right before uh right during the break and so my dad and stepmother gave me some and um well i kind of took them but um, <laughs> but you know in the middle of nowhere in tennessee it's easier to get your hands on some and then i had some friends from berlin who are visiting and they brought tons of them and they before they flew home they gave me like 10 of them so that was really nice yeah and it's like the difference of here in the us it's like they they cost at least 10 dollars some more than that 15 20 30 whatever um, in Brazil, I mean, sorry, in Berlin, in Germany, they are available everywhere, no shortage, and they are a dollar a piece or less. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So that's like, that's the difference in governments here. You my, know? my boss came from a trip and through Europe and he brought COVID for us. So now we are working in home office. <laughs> oh, no. Asshole, rich asshole. Oh, well, he should have brought you some tests, at least. <laughs> he doesn't even feel guilt about it. He's playing the victim. What? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I have a relative who got it because her boss let someone at work continue working, even though she knew she tested positive. And it was like, really? Yeah, that's called endangering everyone else at work. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. All right. Let's start the, the interview. Uh, <laughs> okay. And before we actually get into your, your story... Uh, when you tell me a bit about your mother, Pat Chivoli, who was such a strong feminist who raised you and seems to have influenced you a lot. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my mother, Pat Chivoli, she, is, um, she was from Omaha, Nebraska. Well, Ralston, Nebraska, outside of Omaha. She grew up in a um, Catholic, Croatian, American, working class family, pretty poor. Mm -hmm. Um but she was always a tomboy and playing pranks and stuff on people. And uh, definitely like, you know, the town was probably too small for her. So um, <laughs> she took off to Memphis, Tennessee, because she had a friend going to school down there. And she ended up going to nursing school there and got a degree there. And that's where she met my dad, because my dad's from Tennessee. And then... Um, and she, my mother was in Memphis when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, oh, my God. You know, yeah, and that was pretty crazy, scary time. And she just, you know, I think at also at that point, too, she just was like, okay, I've had enough. I've had enough of the South and whatnot. Uh, I'm not saying that things like racism only exist in the South of the U.S., but it's just some things, especially then, were much more blatant. Um at the time and anyways but so at at some point um and my mother or my father was a medic in vietnam and he was so he wasn't in the country at the time he was in in vietnam um but then he came back and then they got married and then at some point had me and my twin sister i have an identical twin sister and then um i think my mom just kind of said hey let's I don't want to live here anymore. Um, so they moved to, they drove all the way to the north of Washington state, almost to the border of Canada, as far as you can go oh my God. and settled up. Yeah, I know it's funny. It's like, get me out of here, almost out <laughs> of the country. Um, and so they started, um, you know, he was, he became a doctor and she was um, a nurse and she started like a women's birthing center at the hospital up there. Yeah. It was like in Mount Vernon, Washington. Um, and then uh, 
my parents divorced um, and when I was about, when me and my twin sister, Cindy, were about seven. And um, my father moved back to Tennessee and my mother came out at that time as a lesbian and uh, vegetarian and kind of hippie and activist and all this stuff. And then she went back and got a higher degree in nursing and started the, ended up becoming a nurse practitioner and started the first women's health clinic down in Olympia, Washington. And also, I think it was only the second women's clinic in the state of Washington. Um, and, you know, that was like, it was in like, like 1980 or 81. And it, you know, it was a big deal at the time. I mean, I think it was really hard for her to even get a loan to start the business. Like at the time, because she wasn't married, they wouldn't give her a loan. So she had to go to several different banks. And finally, I guess someone did, it worked out for her, but, um, she struggled a lot. Um, she provided abortions at this clinic. Um, as well as other care, but her aim was like feminist healthcare, you know, by, for, about women. And um, she was harassed a lot and uh, picketed a lot, lots of protests, um, anti-abortion protests at the clinic. Um, she also at the time would testify, she would examine women in rape cases and would testify in court against the men and would sometimes receive death threats from people because of that or the abortion situation. Um, she eventually started wearing a, a, like a flap jacket, a bulletproof jacket oh my her God. vest. Yeah. And she also took shooting lessons. She was really good shot actually. <laughs> and she got, she was, it was kind of amazing. My mom was one of those people who was like good at everything she did. And she loved learning new things and just, trying to do it herself you know so I, I think she even like did the plumbing sometimes in our house and like did the electrical wiring in a room and you know whatever just it was like self-learner yeah and I don't know somehow I didn't really pick that up from her but um, <laughs> <laughs> probably because she did it all for us um, but yeah so oh um so yeah so she um what was I saying oh anyways I don't know so she just kind of was doing all, all these things and was protested a lot. And then, um, I don't know, I think she worked in a women's prison too, providing healthcare there. Um, but, you know, I think she always kind of like supported people who she felt were oppressed, you know, and mistreated and stuff. And cause you know, she had been in those categories herself. So, and, and was, you know, yeah, she would march in like, um, uh, gay pride parade in Olympia that was when it was really small, like, you know, 10 people or something <laughs> or <laughs> less. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So she was a big influence on us. And I mean, and we grew up, you know, like with this kind of, she was really fun and funny and just, you know, rebellious. And it was, a, it was a fun household. Um, it wasn't always easy because she was gone a lot because she was working so hard and it took many years for the clinic to actually earn money, you know, and, and to support itself. Um, so we were pretty broke for a long time. Um, and also, you know, kind of stigmatized sometimes because, Oh, our mother's a lesbian and so she's a weird hippie. A yeah. Yeah. So. All that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, sometimes people threw rocks at our house. Um, one time people like tried to burn our front door, um, I remember, fuck? yeah, I think one time, um, all the employees came to work and, um, their pets had all, um, had to go to the, um, emergency veterinarian's office, um, that weekend. And they, they're pretty sure all their pets had been poisoned, just stuff like that. You know, Cause it, it was weird, right? It happened to every single person who worked at the clinic. Um, Yeah. So there's just, yeah, a lot of crazy stuff like that. And eventually, and, and my mother did, um, she ended up dying of ovarian cancer in 2000. Um, and about a year, I think, after that, the clinic that she had um, given to her friends who worked there, um, it got, uh, someone tried to firebomb it with a Molotov cocktail. And um, it didn't, 
completely destroy the building, but the water from the, um, whatever the fire things, um, flooded the building and ruined a lot of things in there. So it took them a long time to get back on their feet. And then the insurance company wouldn't allow them to continue to provide abortions based Jesus. because they just, yeah, I know the, the insurance company was said, oh, it's too much of a liability. And they just jacked up the insurance so high that they couldn't afford to do abortions anymore with that insurance policy and they couldn't change. Um, they fought it for a while and uh, uh, they contacted a politician in Washington who ended up making a law that saying that insurance companies can't gouge you for acts of terrorism because otherwise it's you know supporting terrorism or encouraging terrorism. So that's on the books now in Washington state, but it's not retroactive. So it can't apply to their clinic. So fuck. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like they're being put out of business almost you know so doesn't doesn't seem like we are like in 2000 it was in 2000 you know because it's very yeah. very bizarre anyway it's yeah. very inspiring thanks a lot for this story that was super cool oh yeah you're welcome okay all right so let's move on can you hear my cat yeah Shit. <laughs> she's gonna do that the whole night <laughs> she was I'm not sure what she wants. Anyway, um, all right. Uh, you were born in Memphis, but you grew up in Olympia, as you said. And uh, you also did an exchange in Thailand. Is that right? Right. Yeah. How did that yeah. work? Sounds How did that happen? Different. Yeah. Well, um, my mom's first um, real girlfriend, uh, Linda Andrews, she actually, she had been my mother's teacher when my mom went back to school in Seattle to get a higher nursing degree. Um, this woman, Linda, was her professor, and um, they ended up getting together, and that woman left her husband for my mom, <laughs> so it was crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know, and then they, we, and she moved down to Olympia with us as well. Um, the relationship didn't last too many years, but, you know, I know enough, like several years, and, um, but anyways, they remained friends and that woman ended up working overseas for USAID doing um, family planning and healthcare overseas for years and years and years. She only kind of recently retired. Um, so anyway, she was stationed in Bangkok um, in the late, mid, middle eighties, mid late eighties. And um, so my mom was like, all right, once the clinic started like taking off a bit and, you know, she's making enough money. She was like, okay, okay, we're going to go visit her. So she took me and her new girlfriend and my twin sister and I to do Thailand to visit um, Linda. Oh, and it was awesome. It was like, just, we loved it so much. And I mean, I loved everything about it. So, um, and when I got back, I, um, I had, I was part of like some clubs, after school clubs and stuff that um, helped support um, exchange students who came to our school. So we were kind of part of a social committee that would like hang out with exchange students and, um, you know, help them with anything they might need and basically just kind of be social support for, for them. And, you know, I made a lot of friends in that group. And so all these people kind of influenced me to become an exchange student. And, um, and also with my mother loved to travel so much. And so, you know, I kind of rubbed off on me. So anyways, so I decided to apply and um, I had taken German in high school. So that was really the only other language I was familiar with. Um, so there were four choices on the application and I was like, number one, Germany, number two, Austria, number three, Switzerland hoping I'd be sent to a German speaking part of Switzerland. And then for number four, I was like, I almost put the Netherlands because I thought, well, that's kind of a language that seems like it's between German and English. But then I just was like, you know, I really love Thailand. I want to put Thailand. And of course, the organization, they'd never sent anyone to Thailand before. They'd only had exchange students come from Thailand to various countries. So they were like, oh yeah, we're sending her to Thailand. She'll be our first. <laughs> so, so there I went and um, it was, it was awesome in a lot of ways. It was hard in some ways, like my host family was kind of awful, but um, 
but I loved everything else about it. And um, I guess I was lucky I was young enough to pick up the language pretty quickly. And um, what really helped was learning to read and write. I think at first I was afraid because it was a different alphabet, but I, it's a phonetic alphabet, much more um, phonetic and with better rules and stuff than English, that's for sure. And if you learn it, you definitely, it helps with so much, you know, with speaking and everything. And, and I was also, you know, learning culture and stuff and just trying to be as respectful as possible. And, you know. Sure, do they have like a lot of vowels in their alphabet? Uh, there are a lot of vowels, but you know, the thing is, is there's a lot of vowels in a lot of languages that, well, in English, we have so many different sounds, but we just don't represent them with mm. letters, you know, like, for example, the A in English can have like six different sounds, at least. It's a mess. And yeah. the, you know, and it's like, believe, because I actually teach um, ESL, like English now. And I hate it when I get assigned a pronunciation class, because I'm like, no, <laughs> English <laughs> is so hard. It's hard to teach pronunciation because it's so all over the place. But I, I love Thai because it's like, well, they are these specific letters that, you know, represent all these different vowel sounds. There's yeah. not just one letter. I'm studying Turkish now and it seems like it's way more, it looks like math, you know, because you got put in like a suffix and suffix and make like a, a huge word that's a whole sentence. And that's very Ooh. logical and that's super cool. For me, at least I'm that's a programmer, nice. so it makes more sense to my mind. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah, I felt that way about Thai. I felt like it made sense. And um, and also, I think as being a mu musician, maybe, and stuff like that, the tone situation wasn't difficult for me. I mean, you know, I'm good at, I was good at mimicking and, and listening. And, you know, I just listened to the radio a lot and just tried to copy the way people spoke and stuff. And... You know, I mean, at this point, I've forgotten so much. I mean, if I if I hear it and listen and, and try, I, I remember a lot. I'll be, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that word. Oh, yeah, that's how you say that, like that. But I'm not real great at just coming up with my own conversations anymore. But I, I felt like I was fairly fluent, maybe less than fluent, but pretty good. Fluent conversationally yes. for a long time. But it's gotten hard now. But one thing that gets me in trouble is that um, I've been told that my accent is is spot on. So it's funny. So I can say my, you know, few, the small things I can say now, I can say it with the correct accent. And so then people think, oh, she's fluent. And then they just, you know, keep talking. And I'm like, ah, slow down. <laughs> hey, so, you got to have like a, a regular Thai friends speak every day so you, your memory just starts to come back probably <laughs> I do you know when I was I mean since the pandemic I haven't taught at the um, English language school but um, when I was working there we had Thai students and um, the head front desk manager is um, also Thai and so I, I did have a chance to practice more But now what I've decided that I'm doing that helps is I've been watching um, Drag Race Thailand, which is awesome, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I watch that and that helps me a lot. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, like trying to listen and okay, what's the slang they use and trying to pick it up. The drugs are so. teaching you Thailand again. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, All right, let's start. Now let's go to Olympia. Uh, you first met Molly Neumann, the drummer from Barapenville, uh, at the University of Oregon back in the early 90s. And later you two would start doing the, right, the first Riot Gear fanzines. Could you tell me a bit yeah. about what is the beginning of this whole story? Yeah, um, I went away to school in Eugene, Oregon, at University of Oregon, um, which was just one state away from me. But for Molly, she grew up in Washington, D.C., so it was a long way from home for her. And I think she came out there because there was sort of a Shakespearean program, not even at that school, but at a nearby university or something weird like that. Anyways, um, but that's why she came to Oregon. 
And I just remember we were in the same dorm on the same floor. Actually, she was my neighbor in the dorms. And she, I remember there was, this is pre-cell phone for sure. And pre-internet really and all that. Um, <laughs> and she was um, on the payphone. There was one payphone in each hallway. And she was on the payphone calling someone um, and screaming at the top of her voice. She was having a big fight, clearly. Like you could tell it was a breakup with a boyfriend. So that's what was going on. And <laughs> she had that kind of quick talking East Coast, you know, she seemed tough, you know. And I was like, whoa, who's that? And um, so I think we both have pretty dynamic personalities. Like I was just kind of wacky and social and she was, you know, kind of tough but talkative. And um, we, anyways, we became fast friends and um, we would often meet in the restrooms, like, cause there was one restroom on each floor, but they were huge. Like they had this huge different areas and there was this big, like kind of countertop that you could just sit on and talk forever. So, you know, we had a secret knock on the wall because she was on the other side of the wall. That was how she was my neighbor <laughs> of where my bed was. And um, so we would have a special knock that was like, meet me in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> and so we would just hang out in there with our notebooks and plan, plot and plan. And she was very politicized. She was already doing a lot of volunteer work and stuff. And um, she kind of helped me to take something that was maybe more uh, personal as political situation and think about things in a broader context. And I think the way I influenced her was I brought a lot of this DIY creative community of Olympia to her, you know, like kind of a creative way of expressing yourself that's super kind of easy or the idea that you don't have to be a professional and that yes. everyone can do it or anyone can do it. So that was kind of how we did our Reese's peanut butter cups thing. Um, and yeah, so, but I think at first we just were kind of bratty and we were just going around saying uh, like how racist and sexist and whatever everything was. Um, and we took uh, very political classes um, and we started spending weekends in Olympia because the music scene really wasn't happening in Eugene, Oregon. It was like in the bigger cities, like in basically Olympia. Well, Olympia wasn't a big city, but uh, there's reasons why Olympia had a lot going on, I guess, but Seattle, Olympia and Portland. So we mm -hmm. would go to shows in those three places, sometimes Eugene. But so we would spend a lot of time in Olympia connecting with people like Calvin Johnson from K Records and Candace Pedersen from K Records. A lot of people, um, Toby, Toby Vale, who later was in Bikini Kill, um, Donna Dresch, all these people. And Bikini Kill was just starting up and they kind of invited us in to be part of their kind of crew, you know, and we would hang out with Kathleen and Toby a lot um, in their apartments and just talk about issues and politics and things we were seeing around us and things we were experiencing. And um, they were so supportive of other women making fanzines and doing music. So I think Toby was one who's like, you guys should start a fanzine. So then we started the Girl Germs fanzine. We also wanted to do a women's radio program, but in fact, in Eugene, they didn't have a college radio at all. Um, we joined a group to try to start a college radio, but these guys who ran it were just total pot smoking hippies and nothing ever happened. So anyways, <laughs> so <laughs> I still want to do a college radio show. I have not done it. Um, but yeah, and then I think uh, eventually we kind of said we were in a band, but we weren't really. And Calvin Johnson called us on our bluff and he... He called us one day and was like, come up here and play this show. You're going to be opening for Bikini Kill and Some Velvet Sidewalk. It was going to be Valentine's Day, 1991. And we just were like, what? We're not a band. We can't do that. You know, and he said, but you come up here like once a month at least and go around bragging that you're a band. Because we actually had been a band in theory for quite a while. Like we said, we are this band, Bratmobile. But we hadn't, we didn't really have songs and we didn't perform. So we were like, oh, okay. So how did you do that on stage? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we ended up um, contacting 
this guy who is in a local punk rock band in um, Eugene, his name's Robert Christie. He was in a band called Oswald Five-O. And he had also been in, I think he'd been in some versions of Sunville at Sidewalk and Snake Pit. Anyways, so he um, loaned us the keys to his practice space and told us what days we could go in there. And he, you know, then I was like, well, how do we write songs? And he said, listen to the Ramones. And, um, <laughs> and I, because I was like such a brat, I was like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to listen to the Ramones if that's what everyone who starts a band sounds like. So I was like, I want to sound different. different. Yeah. But not like we even had the skill to even sound remotely like the Ramones. We had no skills at that point. So it was funny to think that I even thought I could sound like that. But yeah, so I was like, I never owned a Ramones record. Still don't. So. <laughs> <laughs> Better like Ramones yeah. at least. Yeah. But then, but Molly had a guitar and I think she'd maybe sort of been taking guitar lessons and she might've had a few drum pieces too. Um, and so she was interested in the instruments and I was just interested in writing lyrics and singing. And I think it was, it was hard, but at the same time, we just felt like, you know what, there's all this grunge music coming out of Seattle that just sounds really, it's like, we like the music, but it's a lot of kind of like, really kind of broed out macho sexism with long hair yes and flannel so we thought well we have something to say at least you know even if we can just say it sing-songy but I don't think we could have done it without kind of the really supportive kind of K records scene and DIY scene that was going on in Olympia where people would just pick up anything and make noise you know um and then we so we anyways Molly like bought a car off out of the paper she had like it was like $500 and it was an old galaxy 500 and we drove up galaxy. to Olympia. Such a big yeah. car. It was huge. Yeah. It was, and it was like kind of a late sixties. So it was kind of a muscle car red. It was cool. <laughs> um, so we drove up there and we got to the show and uh, as we're loading in Corin Tucker, who was later in Sleater Kinney, um, she hadn't started a band yet, but she asked if she could interview us. She was, going to evergreen state college and asked if she could interview us for a film project at school and um interestingly she's from eugene but moved to olympia and i and went to school in olympia and i was from olympia but went to school in eugene but i had met her before at a ymca camp like maybe a year before um anyways so we played it was weird being on stage for the first time we kind of were like, I kind of kept thinking like, are we a band? <laughs> and are these really songs? Can these count as songs? What are we doing up here? What is this? You know, and that was running through my mind the whole time. Um, but we had a lot of support, you know, Bikini Kill was up front cheering us on and stuff. And um, afterwards, a lot of people came up and were supportive. Um, I remember Kurt Cobain showed up, but he showed up right as we were like playing our last song, I think, or right when we got off stage, he walked in and I ran right up to him and handed him our fanzine. And he, he was like apologetic for not <laughs> making our show. But anyways, we, I was so excited. How was this, but, um, this relation with him? Like it was him like always in the, the concerts. I know he was heavily influenced by the Riot Gear movement. Yeah, yeah, he was around and he really loved K Records. And I think Calvin told people that if they got the K stamp or um, logo um, tattooed on themselves, they could get into any show for free. I think, I, I'm not totally sure, but I thought I heard that Kurt did that, that he actually got the K stamp tattooed. He did. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. So yes. he could get it. So he got into all the shows for free um <laughs> so but he was a big fan and um even though the music he played was pretty heavy he was into tons of like girl bands and stuff and um yeah and I think he was very influenced by like Bikini Kill and and maybe us to a certain extent I mean I think he liked us at first I think later on uh there was some incident where I don't know Courtney Love hated us or whatever and he kind of yes. got him to hate us too it's so lame but I mean, it wasn't anything that me or Molly did, that's for sure. And um, it was really just kind of blown out, but whatever. Um, 
but yeah, he was around. I saw him around at parties and things. And I mean, he was kind of, he was reclusive a bit, but he, you know, I knew where he lived. Sometimes I'd be over at that house. Um, there was a show in his backyard once. Um, he had pet turtles um, <laughs> in a little kiddie pool. And uh, cool. yeah, he was, he was cool. He was very nice and supportive and cool, quiet, but yeah. Yeah, that seems quite. Yeah. And uh, something that for me it's like very fascinating about the Olymp the scene in Olympia as a music enthusiastic is this freedom of creating and doing anything without thinking if it's right, if it's wrong, if it's amateur, if it's professional. And also the whole uh, cassette revolution that happened with the key records. Could you tell me a bit about how was being there? and this energy that comes from the scene in Olympia? Yeah, I think it, it influenced me a lot. Like, I think, um, I mean, I, I think probably when I was in high school, I probably used to laugh at it a little bit, but I went to a lot of shows. Um, but I was very much just an um, observer, you know, and I felt very much like kind of up against the wall and observing. And I didn't really feel like I was a part of it. Um, but also I had started out as more of a new waver, like in the first two years of high school, I was more new wave. And then I was kind of went to punk parties and shows, um, in the later part of high school. Um, and you know, it was fun and everything, but I remember meeting Calvin Johnson at one of these punk parties and, um, he was older. And I remember we were asked him to go buy um, alcohol for us at the store <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no, but I'll walk up there and I'll buy candy. And so we were like, what is this weird guy who doesn't drink and he only eats candy? And um, yeah, but I just, you know, it really struck me. And then I think as time went on, you know, I met Toby. I actually think I first met Toby or first time I really remember her is, um, well, I remember her, but I knew she was around doing bands, but um, in high school. But I remember being at the, the first night that I ever stayed out on a school night to um, see a, a show was when actually the first show that Nirvana played in Olympia. And they were called Skid Row at the time. They were not called Nirvana yet. <laughs> and um, yeah, and they I remember it was so great, but it was at this weird kind of college run um, warehouse space downtown that didn't. I think it was the last night that that venue was existing too. It was about to shut down. And um, there was like, I don't know, maybe 20 people there or certainly not more than 30. There was not many people there. And I remember there was this big pile of like wood and scraps in the corner and I didn't know anyone there. So I just kind of walked over and was looking at it. And Toby came up behind me and was like, hi. Um, but I, she was so weird. I just ran away, but still I was like, okay. Um, so she was trying to be friendly, <laughs> but um, yeah, but it was a great night. And I remembered thinking about that band, like, wow, they're going to be big or they sound, have this really big sound, you yes. know? And I thought, oh, so, and of that course we all thought Kurt was so cute. He was, you know, good looking. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, but I think more and more though, it, it kind of took me leaving Olympia really to see that I could be come back and be part of that community. Cause I think growing up there, I felt like already people see me around and they probably thought I was lame already or something. I was I wasn't cool or something <laughs> or cool enough. But it really took kind of fresh blood coming into Olympia as well. And having that, you know, Kathleen come in and really encourage and Toby to really encourage other girls to do things and to not have this huge um, division of punk and, and new wave or whatever anymore as well. But, and also to have K Records really supporting people to be creative in whatever way they could or wanted to. And it, it would be fun and cool. And it wasn't like, you didn't have to be a professional. And I think that was very unique to Olympia. Um, so yeah, so kind of all those things put together, but I think it helped to have also this real feminist 
um, perspective as well added to that. So it wasn't just like love rock. Yeah, you can do anything, but it was like, you can do anything, but use, and you can have a voice easily, but use your voice for a purpose, you know? Yeah. It was more politically in some way, yeah. some extension. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's specific question here I wanted to do. Uh, and they sure read from the girl germs. Uh, it was the one with the co-interview with Seven Year Beach. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a text from someone, I don't remember who, if it was addressed or not, about the girls' night that happened in August 20, 1991, which was part of uh -huh. the International Pop Underground Convention. Could you tell me mm. a bit about this iconic yeah. night? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, well, I had been away that summer and spent in Washington, D.C. Because once Molly and I got the band going, like I actually would go home with her on school breaks to D.C. And we started meeting a lot of music people there, too. Um, there was a real connection between Olympia and D.C. So anyways, but the summer of 1991, for most of it, I had spent in D.C. And so had Bikini Kill and Nation of Ulysses, of course, they're from there. So we were all there most of the summer. So I definitely wasn't part of the planning of anything that had to do with IPU. I just showed up <laughs> and played. But... Uh, But Bratmobile, I think, was the only band that was um, listed to play twice. Um, so we played on the girl night um, and then we played again on a, a different show, which was like some morning show. Like, I cannot believe we had to play at like nine in the morning. It was so lame. <laughs> There were even people <laughs> watching it? Hardly. Yeah. And we had to play first. We had to open for Kicking Giant and Jad Fair. And I was really annoyed by the whole thing. Um, anyways, um, and even my mom and sister missed it. Like I can't, they couldn't even get there early enough. I think my sister had to take the SAT test or, or the GRE or something, but, um, anyways, um, so yeah, so, but I thought it was cool. These like Olympia is a town that's always been kind of run by awesome women. Like a lot of women own small businesses and feminist people in positions, lots of lesbians. Um, yeah, it's cool. So I felt like, you know, there were a lot of people, women who kind of ran businesses and things like that, who actually helped put the event on. And um, I think that was cool. They had this idea that it would be all women on a, on the opening night. And they were hoping that not only would it support all girl bands or whatever, but also it would kind of force women who are already musicians, maybe with guys to kind of start their own project and do their own thing for that show. Yes. So kind of get people to be creative and do some kind of new one-off things. Um, it was the first show that Heavens to Betsy played. They drove up from Eugene um, or maybe they were, well, Corin might've still been in Olympia at the time. I don't know. Anyways, um, but I loved them and they were so great. They only played maybe two songs or three songs. I don't know, but it was um, beautiful. And I remember everyone just crying. Carter so I cried. such an unique voice. She does. And the songs were just so intense. And yeah, it was just awesome. Um, and uh, I think and my sister performed, actually. She was in this kind of this band called Link. And um Yeah, she did some songs that were really good. She's actually, she's a good singer and songwriter. She later did a country band called Tennessee Twin, and she's really good. Um, I think she has a better voice than I do, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and Seven Year Bitch played. I love Seven Year Bitch. I was a big fan of theirs. I would go up to Seattle and see their shows and stuff. And um, I think it was kind of weird, you know, in the 90s, there often was this kind of almost division between Olympia and Seattle. And I feel like a lot of it was kind of media created. But I think also <laughs> it was this kind of idea of like, tough people versus these kind of like love rock people, or and also within kind of the women musicians, maybe it was like the tough girls versus the twee girls, I don't know, but um, <laughs> or versus the riot girls. But, <laughs> But, you know, but I also think a lot of journalists tended to um, try to put 
every girl who played music into the riot girl box. And I think it annoyed a lot of musicians. And so, you know, sometimes they would talk, talk out against that. Um, but anyway, so I wasn't so sure if seven year bitch loved us, but <laughs> we loved them. <laughs> um, I mean, they were never mean or rude or anything. They were awesome. Actually, they're really cool people. But, you know, I just, I, I guess I worried that they felt boxed in by the Riot Girl label. Um, but they, they were great. And I love that band. And gosh, they're a band I really would love to interview for my podcast. But um, I haven't really tried to make that happen yet. Or I kind of did once and I don't know. Well, anyways, I got to try harder. Uh, what happened if you put your podcast is now on anymore? Um, Well, I did it for a year like 2018 and um or 2017 2018 and it was on title the streaming service that you know is run by like jay-z or whatever um they canceled all the indie rock podcasts like all at once and um i i think our our direct editors tried to save our podcast but they weren't able to um I, i know they liked it and i thought it did well um but Anyways, so I think that was a little disheartening to me. So I just kind of didn't do it for a while, you know? Yeah. And I was doing some freelance radio stories here and there and a little bit of freelance writing since then. Um, I did two special um, I'm in the band was is the name of the podcast. I did two special I'm in the band podcast episodes for the Smithsonian that was about um, two women's DJ collectives in Washington, D.C., and um, that was awesome. I really enjoyed cool. that. And that kind of inspired me to do the podcast again. So um, I've recently received um, a fellowship, like a grant from this um, leftist um, think tank in Portland, Oregon. They're called Western States Center. And they're really cool. And the executive director is actually um, a political activist who I, Molly and I knew from way back in our Eugene, Oregon school days, we went to school with him and he was very inspirational to us actually in protest. So anyways, so he's involved in my life again. And um, so, you know, we're working together on this fellowship thing. And so anyway, so I'm reviving the podcast. I'm in the band and, but it's going to be on my own uh, website for it. And um it's my uh, lead uh, launch episode is going to be on Viv Albertine from the Slits. And I'm excited about that. I've been working on it lately. Cool. And the next episode will be Tessa Pollitt from the Slits. And then Mecha Normal, the band. And hopefully Downtown Boys and a lot of other stuff. But I got to awesome. ask some people. I think I've listened to the one of the Nita Sparks and the one with... Marisa Paternoster as well. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite bands ever. Oh. <laughs> I interviewed them as well. They're awesome. Awesome. Oh, I love them. I, I just, to me, all of the people I interviewed were so inspiring and it's really a lot. I feel like it's just so important to hear people's stories. It kind of inspires you to do it too. You know, even if I've already done it, you know, but it inspires me to go on really. Yes. And, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they were like the band that made me look to the underground and started my project as well, like five years ago. So, yeah, that was super cool. Anyway, uh, yeah, a final question to end this this Olympia Uh Riot Girl section. Why do you believe that the Riot Girl movement came to an end and which influences it had in the generations that, that came after? Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to say even like sometimes what ended and what big, what's the end? Sorry, I'm adjusting my curtains. The sun, I love and hate the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Living in LA, it's kind of both, you know. Um, Well, I mean, I think uh, to me, Riot Girl ended by the mid 90s, but that might be because Bratmobile broke up in like late 94. (laughs) But, and then Bikini Kill, I'm not sure when they broke up, but I feel like they weren't by the end of the night, by late 90s, they weren't very functional anymore. So I, you know, so in a way I feel like it kind of died with those bands, but at the same time, 
some people kept things going and Riot Girl meant different things to different people. And there were kind of chapters all over the place with different goals and different participants. So it's funny. I still hear about people who say they're Riot Girls or that they're, you know, still doing things with their girlfriends and whatever. And so sometimes I think, you know, we definitely said both Kathleen, Kathleen, me, whoever, we are all like, take this word and this idea and run with it to anyone, you know? So I think some people still identify with it, but for me, it kind of represented more of a time and place, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we were, ha- there's a lot of issues, you know, first of all, we were really young and busy and we didn't know what we were doing. You know, you just trial by fire. And I think, you know, we, all of us had a lot to learn. I mean, we were like reading a lot of feminist theory and things like this, but you know, there's a lot of things that you don't know if you don't, haven't had that life experience. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of blind spots regarding, I mean, like, I don't know, all these things like race class it's to a certain extent although I don't want to say I don't want to say that everyone in riot girl was white middle class or upper middle class girls because that's not the case but like I don't want to ignore people who are important to riot girl who didn't don't fit into that mold but um but I do think that there were you know there were you just kind of like the issues that you are into are the ones that affect you. You know what I mean? So if it's not very racially diverse or um, maybe um, it was ableist or, you know, was all these different things, it's like, then you're not going to necessarily really get into those issues enough. So I, I see that there was a lot of shortcomings to it. Also, I think at some point, because the media really came in and kind of exploited it and turned it into this almost a fad or a fashion trend or something. Um, I feel like the media kind of also um, helped make it um, something that people made fun of, you know? Yes. And kind of took the um, teeth out of it, you know? And uh, so I also think it helped the way that they portrayed us and would only focus on the singers in bands or whatever. kind of create a, a lot of resentment within the broader community, but also within our own bands. And it was ne- not necessarily stuff that we asked for, you know, as singers of bands, we didn't ask to always be the focus or always be the spokesperson or whatever. Um, but anyway, so I think there was a lot of infighting after a while and just and then people wanting to tear you down because they thought you thought you were so hot or so big or whatever. You know? <laughs> um, a lot of jealousy and weird things like that. Um, but anyways, whatever, everything comes to an end. Um, and I think that it's more interesting. Um, also, I think nowadays, a lot of feminists and stuff, it's, you know, it's more intersectional and it's um, also less, uh, it's not as binary gendered, you know, I mean, that's one thing about Riot Girls, very gendered and the nineties and stuff like that. I mean, I think we felt like we had to be, you know, you identify what you're up against kind of, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be, you know? So I think that, I don't know, I'm kind of excited like nowadays, especially with the kind of free expression now that people can have based on like, the internet and digital media and stuff like that. It's kind of exciting to have all these um, formerly suppressed voices, you know, come to the top and, and be seen and heard, you know, and that's kind of how I always wanted it to be. Cool. So. Yeah. All right. I have a question here. I promise to the person that was going to do that. <laughs> that's a, oh, very, yeah. it's a very passionate one. Uh, let me get okay. it. Uh, it's from a teacher from Brazil called Larissa, who runs a, a feminist fanzine and Instagram page. And uh-huh. she wrote an article where she listed like 50 bands that keep their regular ideas and identify themselves as red girls. Uh, they were asked about what they have done in order to achieve. Uh, and most of the answers were related to the inclusion of LGBTQIAP plus community and Black people in the scene. Do you think that 
being a writer, they can move things forward. Can they still change the world? Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like changing the world is a matter of, of everyone participating. You know, I think what's important and some of the important aspects of Riot Girl were that this idea that you should be an active participant in your own culture, in your own community, and in your own scene, you know, in your own punk or whatever. So I think that's important. And I think that's something from Riot Girl and from kind of the Olympia music scene that people should take and bring that into whatever they're doing, that idea at least um, of kind of DIY and being an active participant in culture, because if you don't, mainstream culture is going to try to hand it to you or they're going to steal even your culture and sell it back to you at a higher price, you know? <laughs> so you got to kind of remain vigilant with that. I do um, believe, I don't, I don't believe that we were really like political activists so much as cultural activists. And, you know, hopefully there can be a bit of a soundtrack to various struggles. Um, but I think it takes all sorts. Like, I think it takes everyone with whatever skills or interests they have to speak up and speak out and to try to create the world that they envision or, you know, or change things that need changing and that they see as necessary and important. Um, and yeah, I think that there's always hope for that, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be called Riot Girl. I don't believe that you have to have the same words or the same names. I mean, everyone should be coming up with new names and new terms and new ways of talking about things, of course, keep it updated and fresh. But yeah, I think that, but I do think that now we have so much more, so many more voices of Black, BIPOC, you know, and also um, LGBTQ and um, non-binary speakers and voices that are heard with really important things to say and that people are listening and they're getting airtime, you know? And I think that even though like the systems and the structures have a long way to go to really change, um, but you know, it's always, it's always the culture that changes first, right? Before the laws do. Yeah. So, definitely. you know, the hearts and minds, whatever. <laughs> even though but, we're going to a fascist wave, it seems that people are getting more engaged and yeah. Yeah, and we have to be, but it takes all kinds. You know, I don't feel like, oh, there's only one way to speak out. Obviously, there's many different ways and you can make a difference in your own community, your own backyard, your own whatever. And that might influence someone else who goes on to do something else. And, you know, yeah. just realizing we can't do this stuff alone. It takes it takes a bunch. It takes a community. It takes a village, right? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Okay, uh, to end this interview that, it's gone huge already. Uh, there's a very <laughs> open question. No, it's because I'm going to be tired of that to Portuguese. So. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> that was fascinating, really. Uh, and yeah, to end this interview, I'll ask you a very open question. I want to know mm -hmm. what's feminism for you and why it's still so important nowadays. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the the hard one. That's hard for me. Yeah, it's just hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think feminism, it, you know, is the idea that, well, acknowledging that uh, things aren't equal and that we need equality, but also not just equality, but just struggling for justice and acknowledging a history of of sexism and oppression but also on recognizing how all these different isms and oppressions are related and how they all compound each other and make things worse. Um, and that we, you know, it's kind of that idea that we're not free, you know, what, what is it? Like, no one's free till we're all free kind of a thing. Um, and so I don't know, but I think feminism is just recognizing that sexism exists in this world and is still oppressing a lot of people and it would be better for society not just women but men and non-binary people too to have a not sexist world you know yeah and it's like and to have a world that is not confined and defined by gender roles and um and gender violence and gendered violence so and 
I don't know. So I think that in my mind, as long as sexism exists, so must feminism, because it's the struggle to be heard, to be seen, to be equaled, or, you know, and to be, I don't to have justice served to you, to be respected. All right. Awesome answer. Really. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Alison, that was an honor, a huge pleasure. That was fantastic, really. Thanks a lot oh. for joining me on my project. Oh, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> hello, hello, Brazil. <laughs> All right. Oh, see. I'd love to go there again someday. Hopefully I can make it back. I hope it works. Yeah. Let me know if you come to here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. See you. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. You too.